And what we're able to do is now that we can observe specific markers and I pinpoint them and tag them in a data set, we think we can learn more about why some individuals seem to be accumulating more wealth, for example. Hi, welcome to Ready to Scale Season 3. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. I'm a real estate investor, syndicator, and operator of multifamily properties. And in this season, we're going to focus on dialogues that drive success. Building real wealth is not a fairy tale nor rocket science, but there's so much to learn. So grab a cup of coffee and join me each week for in-depth conversations with successful real estate investors. Conversations that are designed to help you drive your wealth, investment, knowledge, and lifestyle to the next level. And of course, you can always go to my website, elliperlman.com, to read more about investing passively in multifamily. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman, broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today, I'm telling you, it's going to blow your mind away. It's such a fantastic topic, and I'm really excited to have Kevin Tom on the show. He's a microeconomist and assistant professor of, of economics at the University of Wisconsin. His recent work, get this, explores how molecular genetic data can be used to better understand what drives behaviors, human capital accumulation, and household financial outcome. So we're basically going to talk about the wealth gene. That's something that he has been researching. And, you know, he co-authored a study about what is now known as the wealth gene. And I'm really excited to have him on a show and explore what is wealth gene and do you have it and do I have it? So I want to welcome, you know, Kevin to the show. Hey, Kevin. Hello. Hi, Ellie. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and talk to you and to talk about this research that I and my co-authors are you know, very excited about. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about this study. Where did you start, you know, the study? What was the motive behind it? Tell me everything about it. I really want to know. Well, the motivation, I mean, this really grew out of first my introduction to genetics and economics in general, which is not something that a lot of economists are necessarily studying. I had been interested in health behaviors and, and how people make health decisions like quitting smoking, et cetera. And one of my colleagues at my previous institution, uh, David Cesarini, really introduced me to this brand new field at the intersection of molecular genetics and economics. And so in the case of something like smoking or health behaviors like obesity or drinking, you know, we're used to thinking about the possibility that genetic markers might be associated with addiction dynamics or with metabolism or something like this. And what then really got me excited was learning that there were genetic markers that predicted more complicated social science outcomes like educational attainment, for example. So my interest in this really grew out of those early interactions with people like David, who's at New York University, and Dan Benjamin, who's at UCLA now. So those are really the kind of pioneers in this field. And that led us then, you know, as I began working with that group, really got interested in these genetic markers that predict 
educational attainment. This is one of the first real big complicated social science outcomes where we're gathering lots of insight about which genetic markers seem to robustly predict differences across individuals. And so that's maybe a good place to start which is the, I noticed in many people think, oh, is there a wealth gene or an education gene? And this is an example of where there's no one gene or one genetic marker that has a very big association or impact on any of these outcomes. When we think about a, a complicated outcome like educational attainment or like wealth accumulation, and if we think there are genetic linkages there, it's almost certainly what we call polygenic, that there are many, 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 many genetic markers, each of which have these tiny little contributions to whatever biological mechanisms they might be influencing. So there's no wealth gene, <laughs> I can definitively say that, but there does seem to be different sets of genetic markers that are associated with differences in educational attainment, or more broadly, what economists might call human capital accumulation. And so my co-authors and I were interested in understanding, hey, these genetic markers that seem to predict how much schooling people acquire, do these also predict other outcomes that we think are related to schooling and human capital accumulation and progressing through the labor market, et cetera? And that led us to look at household wealth in the, the study that we're currently talking about. So you basically... You found some genetic code or what you call an accumulation. I, I forget the exact phrase. A polygenic scores. For, polygenic so scores. Yeah. So what is that polygenic scores when it comes to finding whether someone is more disposed to become wealthy or successful or more educated? Right, right. So we are building off of you know, we are not the ones who are going out and discovering or finding these individual genetic markers. We are building off of the scientists, geneticists who have done this sort of primary work. And so the primary work here is a set of landmark studies that scanned the human genome and found a whole bunch of markers that seem to be associated with years of schooling, with educational attainment. Now, each of those little markers by itself doesn't have a very large association with something like education, but you can, in essence, add them up. And then you get something that has much more continuous variation in the population. And that's what we call this polygenic score. Uh, so it's a kind of measure that is sort of counting up how many of these markers that are either positively or negatively associated with educational attainment that, that someone has. And the idea that these genes might predict education or that any genes might predict education or wealth is, you know, that's actually, that's not the question in some sense that we're answering. Because I think for a long time, we've had this idea that a lot of interesting social science outcomes like educational attainment, like income or wealth, that there was some genetic contribution to these things. And largely, that would have been coming from twin studies where people mm. sort of look at identical twins who are genetically identical and, and fraternal twins, you know, who are not identical, and then sort of compare how similar those sets of twins are to each other in terms of education or wealth, et cetera. And so from those studies, we already had a sense that something like education or wealth, there's a non-trivial fraction of the variance of those traits that could be due to genetic factors. 
the majority we still think is attributable to environment and parenting and what's going on around you, but there's a non-trivial factor that seems to be related to genetics. And what we're able to do is now that we can observe specific markers and I pinpoint them and tag them in a data set, we think we can learn more about why some individuals seem to be accumulating more wealth, for example. And so I think that's the part that a lot of your viewers would be, would be really interested in. And so I guess I, could, I can talk a little bit about that, that it should be no surprise that people that seem to have a predisposition to accumulating more educational attainment, it should be no surprise that they would end up accumulating more wealth because more educated individuals earn more, they may have access to familial knowledge about financial markets, et cetera. What is maybe surprising is that even when we control for educational attainment, even when we compare people that have identical educational backgrounds, we still find that this polygenic score is predictive of higher financial wealth. And some of that is related to household earnings, and some of that is related to inheritances, for example, but there still is a big association that's left even after we control for those things. And so that led us to look at some other channels that might not be so obvious. And this is all very kind of exploratory at this point, but we really think that there might be an important role to play here for how people process information and how they think about the future. So one of the things that we found is that these genetic markers seem to predict how people form expectations about future macroeconomic and financial events. So respondents in the study that we look at are asked, what's the probability that the stock market goes up next year? What's the probability that there's a major recession in the next five years? And, you know, people are all over the place on these, you know, and in terms of what an actual probability is. But we have definitely found that there is a tendency for people with higher values of this polygenic score to give answers that are closer to the objective benchmarks for these things. They're less likely to give these overly optimistic answers. Oh, there's a 100% chance that the stock market goes up or these overly pessimistic responses. Oh, there's no chance that the stock market goes up. And so, you know, that might be one channel that if I'm able to look at a set of financial decisions and think about risks and probabilities associated with these events, it might be that there are some individuals that are processing those in different ways and in ways that lead them to make decisions that might be more conducive to wealth accumulation. And in particular, we have a reason to believe that stock market participation is a big channel here that what seems to really differentiate people with higher versus lower values of these scores in terms of wealth accumulation is just whether or not they're invested at all in equities. And so that gives you some idea of the you know, kind of flavor of, of, the, of the analyses that we're, we're doing in that paper. That's fascinating. While you were working on this study, was there anything that you found extremely surprising that you didn't expect? Yes, there is for sure. And that leads me to maybe a very important point in all of this, which is that people often like to think about genes and environments you know, as being these kind of separate factors. You know, people are often asking, well, is it nature or nurture? Or what's, mm -hmm. you know, what, what, yeah. as if these things are separate from one another. And that's a huge problem, you know, for us because you get your genes from your parents 
And so if you find a genetic marker that predicts wealth in a data set, we really, you know, it's hard to know whether that is a biological mechanism or if that's just indicating that, well, you came from a rich family and this mm -hmm. rich family had just happened to have this particular, you know, genetic marker that was then shared throughout you know, the rest of their, their generations beyond the current one, right? And so that's a problem for us and we don't fully have that solved. But one thing that we do know is that there are studies and other data sets that look at siblings, right? Not twins, but just generic siblings that have the same parents, the same family environments. And even there, these genetic markers seem to predict differences across individuals. So, you know, we have a sense that while there is some bit of, you know, the, the environment that is being showing up in these associations, it definitely seems like there are biological differences that are separate mm. across individuals that are at play here. And two things in particular that are important. So in one of the foundational papers that we build off of that's published in uh, Nature Genetics, they also can perform an exercise that looks at some of the biological pathways that some of these markers might work through. And so this is sort of suggestive. We don't have a complete picture, but it does seem like some of the markers are expressed or are operational during early stages of fetal brain development, mm -hmm. and that, that some of them are also involved throughout the life cycle in neuronal communication and sort of the way in which neurons in the brain uh, communicate. So that's exciting. We think that's kind of, it was interesting for me to learn those things. But then that led to the real surprise or the real kind of policy in, thing that's interesting for us was the following, that there was a lot of variation in our data set in terms of households that had access to defined benefit pensions versus households that did not have, you know, that had defined contribution plans or that were largely managing their finances, you know, by themselves. What we found, which was really interesting and surprising to us, was that if you, there was no difference in these genes in terms of whether or not someone had the, was likely to get, have, be the recipient of a defined benefit pension plan. But we found that if you looked within the group of people that had defined benefit pension plans, there was a much, much smaller relationship between these genes and mm -hmm. household wealth at retirement than there were amongst the households that didn't have access to these plans. And we think that that highlights you know, the real possibility that, that these are genes that may be influencing or involved with how people make financial decisions when they're kind of left to their own devices. If I'm getting a defined benefit you know, stream, I have, you know, there's a third party that is managing that money, that's making decisions about asset allocations, that is, I'm just getting a check every month once I decide to retire. Someone who doesn't have that, maybe is in a defined contribution plan, or maybe doesn't have any plan at all, you know, they're really facing a much broader array of choices and so maybe some of those information processing issues that we talked about earlier might be more relevant or it might impact the outcomes within those households more. And so we thought that was a surprising, really powerful example of how, you know, you can have environments, you can have policies that can come in and really shape these, these gradients, these genetic associations. There's nothing innate or inherent about a link between a gene and an outcome. 
all of these things can always be shaped and influenced by policy and by the markets and financial institutions that people have to interact with. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, you know, to think about what you've mentioned before about nature versus nurture. It's easier to understand that, and we see it obviously, you have, you know, second generation to a wealthy family is more likely to be as wealthy, if not more, because maybe the gene, what you call the wealth gene, which is not really a wealth gene, but I want to strongly push back on that <laughs> single, you know, wealth gene. And, and yes. I go even further than that. There's a there are genes that are associated with wealth in our current institutions and mm-hmm. in our current environments and markets. So but genetically, they may carry that positive baggage that helps them to become, you know, more more educated and wealthier. And also that's the nature part. And the nurture part is that they got education about money and investing from, you know, maybe day one and they had the right, you know, support system. That's pretty easy to understand. But those who have created wealth when, you know, their parents were not wealthy, which, you know, my parents, you know, they're not wealthy by any means. And so, the nurture part is is absent, right? You can't learn how to become wealthy if you don't grow up in that environment, which brings us to that interesting insight. And that's the major contribution of your study. There's something there. So you don't just get lucky. I think luck can get you so far. And it's something in you, in your genetic code and how you're built that helped you get there, that helped you build wealth. And you see it, you know, Semzel is is one of the favorite real estate investors out there. So first generation to create wealth, you look at their siblings and they're not necessarily wealthy because the nurture part might not be there, but the nature part is, and it maybe skipped a few siblings and kind of sat on one sibling. But, you know, a lot of our investors are really interested in creating generational wealth, whether they are second, third generation or first generation, you know, to wealth creation. And I think they're going to find it really interesting that their kids are more likely to become, you know, wealthy, not only because they're going to inherit the money and not only because they're going to teach them about investing, but also they may carry something inside their DNA that is going to make it more likely to become wealthy, because you can also, you know, you, there are many stories of people who inherited money and lost everything. Of course. And so I, I think there's there's two things that it makes me think about sort of, you know, one, and I think this can't be emphasized enough, you know, that the majority of the variation that we see in wealth is not due to genetic factors. And so even within households, you know, that we have siblings that share, you know, different, you know, share genetic markers, for example, you're still going to see big differences because of all the other non-genetic factors that go into play there. But secondly, something that, that this makes me think about too, and this is a big motivation of ours, right, is that it is interesting and important to us that what we're looking at are genes that have an association with educational attainment, that also have an association with income, that also have an association with wealth accumulation, controlling for all of those things, or controlling as best we can. Because that suggests that there is a certain compounding of whatever factors are present there. That it would be one thing if we're concerned about, as my co-authors and I are, about 
inequality and at a, at a social level, it would be one thing if you know some people had better income than others, some people had better you know financial planning skills, and some people had you know were getting larger inheritances. For example, it would be one thing if those things were kind of randomly distributed, but it becomes concerning when. There are some people, the same people that might be a little bit better at earning higher incomes are also the same people that are a little bit better at investing that money, that are also have a higher probability of inheriting that wealth, and so on and so forth. And so relatively small differences could possibly compound in ways that are really magnified. And I think that from the perspective of wealth inequality, social inequality, it's important to understand that. It's important to understand the linkages that might create, you know, dependency across all of these different forms of, of advantage or privilege in, in the economy. Right, right. That's absolutely right. Any kind of final remarks before we move to the lightning round questions? So I want to make sure we, we don't miss on anything, you know, interesting or important, you know, that comes out of your study. I would just say this. I say the interesting thing is that there is wonderful, amazing things happening in the availability of genetic data. And we're learning lots of things, certainly in the medical domain, but also in the mm -hmm. domain of social sciences. There's no one wealth gene. There's a highly polygenic and social factors interact and interplay with genetic factors all the time. And just because there is a genetic association, it doesn't mean that someone is sort of destined to have one particular set of outcomes. Nevertheless, it is interesting to know that there are genetic markers that seem to predict wealth and better understanding that can help us better understand wealth inequality, it can help us better mm -hmm. understand how to create environments where individuals of any kind can thrive and succeed. All right, Kevin, lightning round questions. Are you ready? Sure. All right. First question is, what's your favorite hobby? My favorite hobby is playing guitar. Playing guitar. All right. What's the one thing that people don't know about you? The one thing that people don't know about me, well, my very good friends will notice about me, but I can't hear out of one ear. And so there'll be subtle tells, like I will always be on the left side of, of these people. So people who know me very well know this. This is also why I yell all the time. So I think my students think that I'm just, you know, I'm just this person who likes yelling and shouting. It's really just because I can't hear myself. All right. Well, what's your number one advice to high net worth individuals and family offices that want to scale and grow their portfolio in 2021 or grow their wealth this year? You know, the question is a little bit beyond my expertise, but I, I certainly think that, you know, if economics in general, financial economics has really taught me a lot of things, it's that keeping track of fees and costs and tax implications are you know, the really, really the big differentiators. I think a lot of times I meet people that are have some amount of wealth, mm -hmm. some amount of sophistication, and they spend a lot of time thinking about individual stocks or am I going to do research on a company? And that is probably it's better for them to spend their time investigating the fees of the financial products that they're looking at, understanding tax implications, et cetera. Those are things that you can for sure do something about. Picking you know, a winning stock out of a hat is, is a lot harder. All right. Well, Kevin, if 
the listeners want to get in touch with you, reach out to you, where can people find you? You can certainly see my website, my research website that you would find it. You're Googling Kevin Tom Economics. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. Again, you should just search Kevin Tom Economics because I unfortunately pick a handle that has just an incomprehensible string of numbers. So you'll find me on Twitter if you, you search. All right, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. That was a really, really interesting discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you. It was, it was my pleasure. All right, guys, that's it for today. Be bold, be great, keep moving forward, and I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.